Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Teaching Writing in College. Got to start the slideshow here. There we go. Where the driving question is, how can instructors and higher education leverage theory, science, pedagogy, and craft most effectively to help their learners with writing? And today, I'd like to spend a little time talking about practice, going back to the Elon statement. Uh, you may remember conceptual knowledge, practice, metacognition, and then I snuck enabling disposition in there. Also part of the Elon statement, those first three are what the Elon statement calls enabling practices for transfer, conceptual knowledge, practice, and metacognition, but I also like to include enabling disposition just because um, it is also so crucial. And uh, uh, we'll get to that as time goes on too. One thing that I like to talk about, you know, there's a lot going on with artificial intelligence right now. And uh, this episode, we can kind of think of it as beating artificial intelligence through practice. Uh, practice really does, I think, ne get neglected a lot. Um, it's really easy, and I'm guilty of this too, giving students a writing assignment, providing a description, and then weighting it with high, a high-stakes grade can really short-circuit the learning process because the students want to go straight for the grade. They don't want to practice. But as we're going to see in this episode, practice really is crucial. Uh, students often want that linear path from the assignment to the grade. Um, I think, and I've said this on the podcast before, that assigning greater weight to participation can open the door to learning because then if you have students practice the skills, instead of just, you know, from time to time, instead of just having them do them once on a, uh, maybe a final paper or maybe twice, once on a draft and once on the final, and then who knows for sure whether they uh, really self-evaluated their performance with whatever the skill is in between, you know, it, uh, uh, it might not be as effective as practicing over an extended period of time. So we're going to talk about that today a little bit. And that's the thing is, you know, with artificial intelligence, just to go back to that, you know, it's that's where the uh, possibility of academic integrity, where academic integrity could get violated because it's all about the points and it's about just fulfilling assignments instead of actually internalizing the skills. So I like to compare myself as a writing instructor to an athletic trainer. And uh, here's how I'd like to do it, you know, in athletic training. Um, I like to work out every day, uh, almost every day, and I like to do half-hour workouts uh, from uh, Jillian Michaels or Beachbody. Those are uh, the Beachbody app. Uh, we've got a, G a Jillian Michaels DV DVD here at home. We also have an exercise bike. It's got an app on it where, you know, we can ride along with the trainer or uh, do our own thing. But um, I really noticed some important things there, and I kind of want to use this episode to show how practice can work and then apply it to writing. So what you're going to see next is a video clip of me that I put together where I demonstrate some lunges. This is me exercising, and so we're going to cut to that clip here for just a moment and uh, take a look at it and then uh, go back to uh, uh, the teaching of writing. So here's the clip. Hello everybody, this is Tom, and uh, I just have a short demonstration video here for exercise, and um, I'm going to compare this to teaching writing in the podcast, but uh, I think, you know, there's a really great lesson here for uh, both exercise and teaching in the classroom. Um, this is a list of different lunges, so I like to exercise 
and I do it almost every day. And uh, in the apps that I use, the programs that I use, the trainers will do maybe one or two of these variations in a workout and mix it up with a lot of other things. And um, I've put them all here, as many as I could think of, just on a list of ones that I see in the workouts that I do. And so these get interspersed uh, throughout a wide range of workouts. Um, and uh, they're also varied. So they're interleaved, meaning that they uh, get interspersed with other things. And then they are also, uh, they're, they're variations on the same thing. Um, I probably, I've never seen anybody uh, do an exercise video where they've just done lunges the whole time. Uh, that would be really hard, I think, on the body, on the legs. But uh, they interleave it to get the maximum benefit and they vary it as well something we should also do in the classroom. So I'm just going to demonstrate some lunges uh, so you can see the variation here. And I have about 12 of them. So this right here is a static lunge. Uh, just uh, no uh, change in the footprint, just uh, plain up and down move. And uh, this is what it looks like from the side. This is what a lunge looks like. And um, it can get varied quite a bit. So uh, some trainers sometimes in the programs will have uh, people do a, a simple step forward lunge. And you can also alternate the legs, go back and forth with those like that. Um, then you can also do stepping back like that. And then you can alternate them. Um, there are jumping lunges, so same thing, just one leg like this, brings the intensity up quite a bit. You can also alternate this, like so, brings the intensity up even more. There's a curtsy lunge which, which hits the muscles differently, so it's like a curtsy. The legs, the foot steps back, but it steps back and also to the side, a little bit behind the other side. And of course, you can also vary those by uh, using both legs. And then you can also use weights. And so, for example, you can bring the arms into it here, like that. Um, you can uh, do just a simple lunge with an arm move like this, a bicep curl. Um, you can do what's called a pendulum lunge. So same leg and a hammer curl at the same time. And your moving leg is swinging like a pendulum. This one really gets the cardio going as well as the strength. Um, there are also side lunges like this. Um, you can step it. Uh, you can do just one side. Um, you can also do shoulder raises like this. And so those are the 12 or so moves that, uh, not a breath, good workout, 12 or so moves. And um, uh, that's it for this video. Thanks so much for joining me in my home. I do have a dog back there. Her name is Tella. And then also I have to apologize because there's a picture on the wall that fell off couple of weeks ago that we have to get a new frame for. So thank you so much. And we'll go back to the podcast. All right. So there you have it. Um, 
physical practice versus cognitive practice. It, that was physical practice, but it's also true in cognition. Um, a couple of things that uh, Robert E. Haskell and Daniel T. Willingham seem to answer, emphasize excuse me, <clears throat> in their books, uh, Transfer of Learning and Why Don't Students Like School. One is that practice just simply aids memory. And so that's really important because if you want to transfer something, you have to remember what it is that you want to transfer. Um, it contributes to better performance and expertise. It uh, gives students an opportunity to internalize it, so on and so forth. So it's really important to kind of keep going back to some of the same skills and redoing them and repracticing them in different ways, just like I did in the exercise video with the lunges. And so uh, one that I've chosen to show how this could work, a uh, skill that I've chosen is inductive reasoning with cause and effect. And I've, I've, I've thought of a few different places where I've learned about this. One of the main ones is uh, Jeannie Fonestock and Marisa Kaur's article in 1984 or 1983 about teaching stasis theory in writing courses. I should go back and get that actual uh, citation and put it in the show notes. But I think it's College Composition and Communication, and it is um, 1984 or 1983. And uh, the title escapes me right now, but Jeannie Fonestock and Marisa Kaur, kind of a uh, an important article in composition. Um, there's also Ramage, Bean, and Johnson. Uh, their text, Writing Arguments, has a pretty good treatment of the stasis theory in it. Uh, Ramage's Rhetoric, A User's Guide, is another one. Uh, there's John Stuart Mill with concomitant variation, also uh, uh, kind of where we get this idea of inductive reasoning from that I think gets used in the sciences a lot. But just a really brief definition, uh, kind of an easy-to-remember one that I use with students, it's using specific examples to develop a general conclusion. And uh, it has really wide applicability. A lot of research about cause and effect in just about any discipline is conducted inductively. Anytime they're looking into cause and effect and they're not explaining directly how it happens, but they are instead you know, gathering a bunch of data points and then asking themselves, what do all these data points add up to in terms of conclusions we can draw? That's an inductive study. Um, a lot of news reports on new research include induction as well. You know, I get them on my phone all the time. And um, public health, like the COVID vaccine trials, this is a really good example. The Pfizer, one of the early Pfizer studies, I think, once they got the vaccine ready uh, and they were starting to go through their clinical trials, I think this was in the New England Journal of Medicine or in the Journal of the American Medical Association, but they studied the uh, vaccine and what they did was they got about 42,000 or so participants and then another 42,000 or so participants if I remember right or maybe it was 42 or 44,000 and then they split them in half but um, they had you know tens of thousands of uh, subjects and they gave half of them the vaccine and they gave half of them a placebo and they then they watched to see the degree to which COVID would develop in those populations and I think the degree of hospitalizations and things like that. And it was based on those data points, you know, and that tens of thousands of people were the data points and then they came to the general conclusion in the study that the vaccine was 95% effective. And so that was an inductive study. That's one that I bring into my classes just because it's 
current and it's something that everybody's heard about and on some level it impacts everybody in some way even if they did not get vaccinated so um that was a good one to use but then there are lots of others too um so anyway here is a list of items or practice sessions that i might use with my students and i might use them to varying degrees sometimes they'd be 30 minutes long sometimes they might be just five minutes as a review but the idea here is to interleave the practice and also to vary the practice both things are really important so uh, textbook for example writing arguments they have a little sample in there, or a little example in there where they just explain you know a red wine versus white wine uh, thing where you know they just say you know suppose you uh, get headaches after you drink red wine but you don't get headaches after you drink white wine you might come to the conclusion that the red wine is giving you headaches and just that collection of um, experiences becomes the set of specific examples and then the general conclusion is that the red wine gives you headaches. Um, just a really simple explanation of how it works. There's an adaptation from the textbook that I like to do, a Dr. Skeen's chocolate chip experiment where I tell the students, okay, I'm going to eat chocolate chips every night before bed for a month and I'm going to see how uh, my sleep may or may not change, you know, what my quality of sleep is and then maybe compare that to another 30 days without the chocolate chips and see if I sleep any better uh, just with the assumption that maybe the little hit of caffeine might uh, reduce my quality of sleep. And so I talked to them about that and maybe I would ask them, how many nights do you think I need to spend? How many would be enough for you? Is 30 nights enough? Is 60 nights enough? And they would come up with various answers to that. I can have students make their own samples, their own examples of little experiments like the red wine one and the chocolate chip experiment. I can have them find inductive elements in a research article. So I might you know, give them a research article and say, okay, just find what the specific data points are and what the general conclusion is that they came to. Uh, sometimes that's just in the abstract, which uh, you know they can go through and find. Or sometimes they have to skim through the article to find it. They can summarize research with an emphasis on induction. So I can give them a, an article to read and have them write a summary of it and make sure that they point out what the specific examples were that the researchers used and what their general conclusion was. I can have them adjust those summaries to be shorter or longer. Um, we can analyze those summaries with induction in various genres. In an academic genre, they might turn out one way. In maybe something like a news article where they are reporting on research, scientific research, and just showing the public, oh, here's this new research about um, aspartame or whatever. Um, the way that the uh, summary, uh, the way that it is presented, the style might change and things like that. But still there's that emphasis on induction. Uh, we can have them change the style in a summary from an academic to a popular style. Uh, they can use induction and summaries in multiple larger assignments. So I try to do that. I try to get them to work it in across at least a couple of different assignments over time. Um, they can use induction and summaries. Oh, I did that. Multiple larger assignments. They can define induction. Just have them write definitions in their own words just uh, from time to time, sometimes just as a brief warm-up exercise. Have them look for opportunities to use it in other classes provide an example for students and ask them if the sample size is large enough. You know, you can find some studies that might use tens of thousands, like the COVID study, but then if they are smaller studies of uh, various kinds, like maybe interactions between parents and children and they have a very small sample size, um, uh, ask them about things like that. 
And so, you know, there is a huge amount of activities that can be done with induction with cause and effect that uh, can happen over a period of time. And this wouldn't all happen, you know, just in a week. This would happen across the semester. You know, early on, uh, I like to introduce induction in some of my classes and then come back to it at least briefly and then also in assignments, you know, throughout the semester so that students get uh, some interleaving and they get practice over time with it. Uh, some of the samples I like to bring in class, I talked about the the COVID study. Maybe it was Journal of the American Medical Association. I'm sorry, I can't remember. It's that or the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm starting to think the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, there's one that I take in about uh, the show 16 and Pregnant, where they uh, studied how the show may or may not have influenced um, the attitudes that uh, teenagers or young adults have toward having children. And what they did is they started looking on you know, search data on the internet and social media data like tweets, I think, and so on. And uh, they may have conducted surveys, I can't quite remember. But, you know, all of those things, you know, to try to find out the cause and effect relationship between the television show and attitudes about teen pregnancy, uh, that's a cause and effect relationship. And they were trying to kind of tease that out through all of those data points. So specific examples to general conclusion. Baby simulator, there was a baby simulator study done in Australia where they gave baby simulators to, I think, high school-aged kids for about three weeks, and then uh, they tracked data on them to uh, see if there was a change in the number of teen pregnancies. And so uh, that's one that I bring in from time to time. There can be some specific discipline or some discipline-specific ones, depending on students' majors. And, of course, you know, uh, one thing I always encourage you to do, I spend a lot of time teaching uh, first-year classes. And uh, the, the examples that we choose, uh, I try to choose ones that I think students will be interested in. And uh, that's kind of what I'm doing here, and that may vary depending on the uh, student population that you're working with. Scaffolding and interleaving, uh, one thing to do, or some things to do. One is make sure all the skills have names, that there's some conceptual knowledge there. Break the skills down into different parts or steps. Vary those steps, vary the examples, just like the lunges and also the classroom exercise examples that I, I just had up a minute ago. Uh, spread them out through the semester. Use them for review, reflection, and sometimes central activities. I really like uh, small teaching by James Lang. You know, sometimes the activity will be five minutes, just asking them to, to briefly uh, define whatever it is. And then, in this case, you know, inductive reasoning. And then, you know, maybe in another class period, it would take 30 minutes to do whatever the activity is. But, um, uh, you know, just reviewing and uh, tweaking and varying the way that those get practiced, uh, any of our skills would be helpful for students. And another thing is that students might be uncomfortable. Um, I, sometimes I get some pushback. You've already covered this, or you're not teaching in a consistent way, so I'm confused. It does take some work on my part to uh, convince students that interleaving is a good idea and that repeated practice is a good idea. And so I do spend some time reflecting and talking to them about that. I try to be transparent about what I'm doing, but uh, it could make them uncomfortable. Um, there is, just over the summer too, let me show you this here real quick. Um, 
I've been doing some reading about related things. And uh, one article that I ran across is that uh, this one, measuring actual learning versus feeling of learning in response to being actively engaged in the classroom. And if you uh, read this, maybe I can read it. Make it large enough to see here on the screen. But um, I think this is from the abstract. I hope you can see this. It's highlighted in blue. We compared students' self-reported perception of learning with their actual learning under controlled conditions in large enrollment introductory college physics courses taught using one, active instruction following best practices in the discipline, and two, passive instruction lectures by experienced and highly rated instructors. Both groups received identical class content and handouts. Students were randomly assigned, and the instructor made no effort to persuade students of the benefit of either method. Students in active classrooms learned more, as would be expected based on prior research, but their perception of learning, while positive, was lower than that of their peers in passive environments. And so the idea here is that, you know, if they're in an active classroom, they might not feel as much like they're learning and they may not perceive it as much. Whereas if they're sitting and watching a lecture, they may feel like they are learning, even though studies show that they wouldn't be. Uh, this is from, uh, where is this? Oh, there you go, PNAS. Um, and so uh, uh, that's one. If you wanted to look at that, you could uh, look it up as well. But uh, just kind of important, you know, students uh, may not react enthusiastically about what we're doing, but then the idea is if you can, to try to make it fun, we can talk about ways to do that as well, uh, to try to keep them engaged. Uh, so that they at least feel like they have something to look forward to. And then, uh, does that sound complicated and overwhelming to you? Um, it does to me, you know, this idea of practicing like this. But um, one thing, a few things that I found. One is that setting up practice for students will always give you plenty to do in your classes. I never uh, run out of things to do with students. Um, but it is also a lot of work. Uh, finding the examples and devising the uh, practice sessions can really be a lot of work. But I also like to always go back to this quote from Daniel T. Willingham in the book that I just had up there, Why Don't Students Like School, on a previous slide. Uh, one of the things he says is that teaching, like any other cognitive skill, must be practiced to be improved. And so as I am thinking about, you know, how am I going to take all of these things, all of the things I want students to learn, and how am I going to get them into my classes in a way that's going to be effective for students and that will be useful for them? Um, I just, uh, you know, spend as much time as I can doing the best that I can on finding the examples and bringing them into class. And uh, I just kind of try to keep track of what I've been practicing with students so that uh, I can try to get coverage among a lot of different uh, skills. And so, uh, it's a lot of work. I do think it's worth it. I think it's worth it for the students. And uh, that's kind of where we are from now. for now. Um, I will bring some samples of practice I use to the podcast from time to time. The semester is starting up for me here in a couple of days. And I'll be doing this kind of stuff with my students anyway. And so I will share some of that on the podcast. I want to go back to chat GPT and uh, AI for just a moment. You know, one thing I forgot to do in this slide, I should have put it in here. Uh, but um, uh, one thing that it does is it really focuses on 
student processing, student processing of information. And I think that's one of the huge things that we have to think about with artificial intelligence. It may change the way that we write. Um, we're still kind of looking at that. But at the same time, um, if we want students to have certain skills or if we want them to be able to recognize and do certain things when it comes to writing, even if it is with an AI tool, they're the ones that have to practice what it is. In this case, you know, whatever the skill is. In this case, inductive reasoning is a skill that we want them to practice, recognize, think about, be able to critique, and so on and so forth. And so um, that's one that I think I forgot to put on there on my list. Uh, we can ask them to critique, you know, or maybe I did. Oh, yeah, providing an example for students and asking if the sample size is large enough, you know, so critiquing an inductive study also um, is on there. But we want them to be able to do those skills. They're the ones that have to practice or that have to uh, internalize them and process them. And that's why practice is so important. It uh, focuses the brain on what we want it to be learning. And so that's why I think this is practice is a really important response to um, artificial intelligence right now. So thank you so much for everything. And I wish you the best in your classes as we start the semester here in the fall. And thank you for watching, listening, and subscribing.